This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to episode 96 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. We are recording this episode during the first week of the February 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. Though we have not done many episodes that are so closely connected to the news cycle, I thought it was important to offer some historical perspective on all that is going on in Eastern Europe right now. And since I'm not an expert on the history of this part of the world, I decided to turn to someone who is. Longtime listeners of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast know Bruce Berglund. We have talked to him three other times about his work on religion in modern Prague, and more recently, his global history of ice hockey. If you are following the events in Ukraine, I think you will find this conversation very, very useful. Again, we are recording this on Wednesday, March 2nd. Uh, this episode will drop on Sunday, March 6th. So let's just hope that everything that we say today will still be relevant uh, on March 6th and that the world has not changed so significantly since then. But nevertheless, I think there's a lot of things here that will stand the test of time, no matter what happens uh, in Eastern Europe in the days between our recording and the actual dropping of this episode. Bruce Berglund will be with us in a moment, but first let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary politics, culture, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that includes this bi-monthly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics, then head over to currentpub.com and click the red support button, or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash current. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. 
You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at John Fia one, or you can follow current on Twitter at current underscore pub one. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. And if you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, we really appreciate your support of our work and even just a share uh, here and there can, can help bring more people to the podcast and to current general. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bruce Berglund spent two decades in different faculty and administrative roles in higher education. For 15 years, he was a faculty member in the history department at Calvin College, now Calvin University, teaching various courses in world history. He was also director of the honors program at Calvin and served on the college's teaching development team. Before that, he was assistant director of the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Kansas. Bruce is an active researcher and writer. He is the author of The Fastest Game in the World, Hockey and the Globalization of Sports. That was published uh, with the University of California Press in 2020. And he's the author of Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, published in 2017 with Central European University Press. He has also written history books for young readers on Soviet women pilots during World War II and drummer boys in the Civil War. Both of them are published by Capstone Press. Bruce is a regular commentator on matters of Eastern Europe and sports. His work has appeared at CNN uh, and the Washington Post, to name just a few of the outlets where he's published. Our guest on the program today is Bruce Berglund. He is a fixture on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. In fact, by my records, he's been on the show four times. He claims he's been on more. We could maybe debate that, Bruce. But anyway, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, John. I think it's been five times. I mean, I, I want my five-timer smoking jacket. It's the only reason I came back. We'll go back and check that. We'll get you that jacket in the mail as soon as we can, if you were actually right. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You are a scholar of this region of the world, and you have written about this uh, in a variety of different outlets. So, you know, hopefully, again, we were just talking about this before we came on. Hopefully what we talk about will still be relevant on Sunday when this episode drops. We're talking on a Wednesday morning. 
So again, I wanted to have you on, Bruce, to provide some historical perspective on everything that's going on in the world right now. So in that sense, maybe um, the historical approach will save us from, uh, you know, getting caught up in the, the moment by moment developments that are happening out there in Eastern Europe. Let me ask you the first uh, question. I wrote a little bit about this, just borrowing from other scholars on the blog recently. And uh, I've been talking to my classes a little bit about this. I'm teaching a course on historical methods uh, about the way in which, you know, we've been talking a little bit about things like nostalgia and myth and how usable pasts have consequences, right? Bad history often has consequences. You know, one could even say bad history might lead to the loss of lives, right? So talk to me a little bit about, I'm really interested in the way Putin has used the history of Russian-Ukrainian relations or their uh, historic connection or maybe lack of connection to justify this uh, invasion. Yeah, this would be a, a terrific lesson for your students, uh, for all of us, in terms of how history shapes people's conceptions of the, the present-day world, relations with other people. History can, can launch invasions, as we're seeing right now. Uh, as we saw last week, you know, Putin's presentation that he made about um, Russian and Ukrainian history was, you know, he really cast this as the justification for why uh, Russia could go to war against Ukraine. And yeah, this, Bruce, was a June 2021 essay, I believe he wrote. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking I'm thinking as well of the even uh, before that. Yeah. The, well, the, I'm thinking of the presentation he made in the. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which I think built off of the arguments. Yes, yes, that that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so so this is something that's occupied Putin really throughout his his time as Russia's uh, leader. Right? Are is the the weight of history in terms of uh, the legacy of the Soviet Soviet Union and even before that uh, the Russian Empire? Right? And he's made reference to the lands that Russia lost in 1917. You know. Um, Ukraine being one, uh, Finland, uh, these other lands that uh, you know are now you know part of the the post-Soviet space, the post-Soviet republics, as well as states uh, states like Finland. So Putin does have this sense of a Russian imperium uh, in Eurasia, uh, and uh, you know going back to your question about the way history shapes perspective. Uh, you know, when I used to uh, teach, I, uh, years and years ago, I worked in the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Kansas, and I worked there with uh, U.S. Army officers who were preparing to serve in embassies in post-Soviet countries. Uh, we also had connections with Russian academics, Ukrainian academics, uh, members of the Ukrainian military uh, had connections with, with the program at KU. And so it was interesting at that time to look at, you know, and these were the early years of the Putin presidency, you know, to look at how he viewed uh, the post-Soviet space and how he had this sense of it was Russia's mission to play a dominant role in, in Eurasia. And at the time, early in Putin's presidency, you know, I recall conversations with with colleagues and with military officers where we'd look at this and say, okay, you know, on a theoretical level, 
Uh, we can, you know, we can ask, does he really believe this? And is this going to drive policy? Is this, you know, is this going to play out in the real world? Uh, and over the years, you can see the steps that he's taken, particularly in the last decade in terms of uh, the invasion of Georgia, uh, the move into Crimea and the Donbass region. You get a sense that Putin is indeed motivated by this, this sense of Russia's historical mission. And, you know, with with his statements recently, with the writing he's done, you know, he's speaking the the quiet part out loud. Right. Yeah. And saying, yeah. you know, it's become clear. Yes, he does believe this. He does indeed believe that the Ukrainians are not a nation and that they should not have a sovereign state, uh, that they should be part of uh, should be part of Russia. And uh, so what we see here is and you know all of the all of the commentary all of the intelligence right about the the build up to the invasion of ukraine and now the invasion it all came down to putin that this was his decision one yeah, person's yeah. decision and we can say a, a strong ingredient in that decision is his view of history now now bruce let me let me follow up like is his view that ukraine is historically part of russia is it is it right? I mean, you know, what do what do scholars who know what they're talking about say? I mean, about his use of history, you know, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, it's is you could say, right, it, I'm an American historian, right? So you could say Canada was part of the British Empire. But, you know, historically, it was part of the British Empire, right? Until 1860, you know, <laughs> you know, and thus the House of Windsor has a right based upon that accurate history to invade Canada because it's historically part of the British Empire. Now, again, that would be a decision based, it would be, you know, we could talk about that decision the House of Windsor might make morally or ethically or geopolitically, but certainly historically they could say, well, yeah, you were once part of us. And I guess is Putin's use of history here accurate according to the way most scholars think about the relationship between the Ukraine and Russia? Uh, well, so strictly speaking, if we're looking at the territory of Ukraine as it's marked yeah. on the map today, this belonged to Russia, right? Or the, the yeah. you know, thinking back to the Soviet Union, only from the end of World War II until 1991. You know, prior to that time, so, so Ukraine, you know, this term Ukraine means on the border. Right. And and the Ukrainians have always lived on the borders between different states and kingdoms and empires throughout their history. Prior to World War II, Ukrainians were divided between Soviet Russian state and uh, Poland. Uh, prior to that, Ukrainians lived within the Austrian Empire, within the Russian Empire, within the German Empire, going further back. You know, the territory that has or excuse me, the state that has the greatest claim to the Ukrainians would be would be Turkey, because uh, the Ukrainians, a large part uh, of present day Ukraine was part of the Ottoman Empire. So, no, this is, you know, and and as you pointed out, you know, making these kinds of arguments as uh, uh, being valid for, um, you know, for present day diplomacy and international yeah. relations that at once belong to us opens, you know, this, this huge can of worms. Yeah. So, but, but no, um, the Ukrainians, you know, other than for the decades after the world war, after world war two, 
uh, the Ukrainians never fully belonged to uh, Russia. They've been divided among different states. There have been very brief periods uh, immediately after World War I when um, Ukrainians had tried to create an independent state. Uh, but you know the tragedy of Ukrainian history being a people on the border is that they've always been conquered and divided and ruled by larger larger neighbors. But both of these Ukrainians and Russians are kind of right Slavs, right? Yes, a larger ethnic kind of. So how much is this about you know Putin's vision? How much of Putin's vision for this united Russia or whatever you want to call it, this restoration of the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union? How much is this based on race? You know, like Slav. I, mean, I want to ask you another question about race later, but kind of these, this or ethnicity, this kind of Slavic empire, right? Well, so certainly Putin has a. He's motivated by a Slavic nationalism, right? Yeah. Seeing, yeah. The, seeing the Russians as the leading Slavic nation. Uh, you know, thinking, so let's define it in terms of, of language. So Ukrainian and Russian are both Eastern Slavic languages. So, uh, so the languages are, are related in that sense. But y- Ukraine is, uh, you know, it's really a fascinating mix of different peoples because you have people who will identify as ethnic Russian. You have people who are ethnic Ukrainian. Uh, you have people who speak Ukrainian. You have ethnic Ukrainians who speak Russian. You have ethnic Russians who speak Ukrainian. When you mix religion in, you get, it gets even more muddled, where you have uh, people who belong to the Russian Orthodox Church uh, with the Patriarch in Moscow, people who belong to the Orthodox Church with the Patriarch in Kiev, people who belong to the Roman Catholic Church, people who belong to the Greek Catholic Church, and then mix in Protestants, Jews, and... Yeah. And other groups. So, um, yeah. So, so it is a uh, fascinating and remarkable mix of of different peoples and different ways in which people identify themselves. And what Putin has done is is you know so in in Kharkiv, the city in in eastern Ukraine that's under bombardment by the Russian military. This is a largely Russian city, right? So what Putin is doing is is he's forging a stronger Ukrainian identity uh, with this attack. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, let's let's shift gears a little bit. Let's let's get into the kind of invasion and what's going on here. Um, I hear a lot uh, in the news and so forth. And I don't, you know, sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm, uh, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm also listening. You know, Putin's propaganda is out there, but I also sometimes when I watch when I watch cable news, even even like MSNBC or CNN, I feel like I'm sometimes listening to like American propaganda about how the Ukrainians are, you know, resisting, which I think is true. Um, Putin's Putin's going to fail. But I have I have some questions about kind of the storyline that you hear you're hearing, right, that the Russian military was unprepared for this invasion there. Um, their approach to this war has, uh, you know, they didn't expect the resistance from the Ukrainian army. Um, the Russian military has all kinds of problems. I just heard this morning, you know, about an anecdote about some of the Russian soldiers who are kind of like, you know, stepping out of their tanks and saying, give me food to the Ukrainian people. You know, they, they want, they want, they don't want to fight this war. Um, 
I guess my question is, you know, maybe you can put some historical context to kind of the Russian military. Um, you know, they're obviously fighting a, an old-fashioned ground war here. Um, you know, how do how should we understand or how should we think historically about all these kind of military questions that are happening right now? Yeah, that's a good question. And and what we're seeing and what we are reading does connect with um, the the performance of the the Russian military in the post-Soviet period and even before yeah. that, the Soviet military. Uh, so remember that the Russian military is based on conscripts, right? Uh, young men are obligated to serve. Uh, historically, and this this is something that has not been been remedied in the Russian military. Uh, conscripts come under terrible abuse from their uh, from their officers. There have been reforms and improvements, some improvements in this area, but but really, um, Russian conscripts are treated badly. You're hearing as well uh, from captured Russian soldiers who will say, you know, the, the Ukrainians have been brilliant with their, their public relations, right? And including public relations to Russia, right? When they capture Russian soldiers and have them call their parents, right? And then they put videos up of these, these calls. And a common theme you hear are Russian soldiers saying, we thought we were on exercises. That's what we, they told us. And now we're invading Ukraine. So this was something that goes back to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, where Soviet soldiers were sent in thinking these were going to be military exercises. They were completely not expecting that they were invading a country. So they were surprised to get fierce resistance in, in Afghanistan. So we're seeing the same, you know, the same playbook now with the Russian military in, in 2022. Uh, so you have a conscript army, you do have really poor morale uh, within the Russian military, even when they're not fighting a war. Uh, you have this, this distrust of the regular soldier, right? Which is why um, military officials basically have to lie to their troops uh, to get them to press into territory. Okay. The other thing you're going to see, and that's, and we're seeing this now, and this relates to the Russian military historically in terms of strategy. Um, recall that Putin built his power back in 1999 when he became president by restarting the war in Chechnya. Chechnya was this breakaway republic in the southern part of Russia uh, that had fought a war against the Russian government earlier in the 90s, and then the war resumed when Putin becomes president in 99, and Putin really sought to clamp down on Chechnya and bring it firmly under Moscow's control. What the Russian military did there is basically took strategy out of what they did against the Germans in World War II, where they sent in massive numbers of troops and just bombed cities into rubble. Uh, the capital of Chechnya, the city of Grozny, if, if you look up photos of Grozny during the Chechen War, you'll see that buildings were just devastated, right? And the Russian military not only targeted the Chechen military, but also Chechen civilians. We see the same thing happening right now in Ukraine, and this is going to get worse. As the Russian military is, is stalled in its attempts to take Kyiv, to take other cities, and to take over the country, uh, is the, you know, the fear I have is that it will continue to ratchet up uh, the targeting of civilians, that it will just you know, basically level uh, Ukrainian cities. And, and in the worst case scenario is if the Ukrainians still stand firm, is that you, uh, excuse me, that Putin will ratchet up the, um, um, the devastation in terms of the kinds of weapons he uses against Ukrainian cities. 
Yeah, I mean, this is again, we're we're recording this on on Wednesday, March second. It'll drop. Talking to the listeners here, we'll hear it on March sixth. So we'll see where we're at at this point. But uh, you know, let's hope uh, and pray that what you're projecting does not happen, Bruce. But you know, again, there, it could be a whole different narrative by the time our listeners hear this. Uh, you are Bruce. You are. Um, you know, one of our foremost authorities on on sports history and sports, especially in Europe and Eastern Europe. You know, I loved your book on hockey. Go back and listen to our. We've done two episodes with you on hockey. Uh, you can go back and listen to those two episodes. But uh, let's talk a little bit about sports. From what I understand, and again, I'm not an expert here. From what I understand, Russia has been banned from all kinds of all international sports as part of the sanctions against them. Um, you know, what, what are some of the, what are some of the big uh, kind of talking points there or the big kind of news stories in terms of the athletic world, you know, that are ha- that's happening right now, the implications of this, uh, of this invasion for, for international sports and Russia's role in that community. Yeah, this is something I've been following closely, and yeah. uh, and it's been surprising. It's been extraordinary uh, yeah. how quickly international sports bodies have turned against Russia and moved to ban uh, Russian athletes from competition. So right away at, at the start, the, the the day of the invasion, uh, UEFA, the uh, European Soccer Federation, moved to take the the Champions League final, so basically the Super Bowl of European yeah. soccer to move it out of St. Petersburg for this year. Uh, so you had uh, right away this move, Formula One canceled the Russian Grand Prix that was scheduled to be held um, in September. Uh, so various organizations and leagues moved right away in those early days to cancel events in Russia, to separate themselves from, uh, you know, from Russia. One of the, the big things that happened, and this moved pretty quickly, is uh, so right now we're in the season in in European soccer for the qualifying rounds for the World Cup that'll take right. place in Qatar later this year. Uh, Sweden and Poland were scheduled to play matches against the Russian national team in the qualifying rounds, and the Swedish and Polish soccer federations said we're not we're not going to play Russia. We're not going to Russia. We don't want the Russian team coming here. We're not going to play. Uh, And this really forced the hand of UEFA, the European Federation, and FIFA, right, the International Federation. And initially, FIFA said, well, you know, let's have the Russian team play, but they won't call themselves the Russian team. They won't use their flag. They won't use their anthem. And the Polish and Swedish federations, and they were joined by other European federations, said that's not good enough. And so what you had, and this was, uh, what day is it now? Yesterday. Uh, FIFA announcing that um, that Russia was banned from World Cup qualifying, right? So the biggest sporting event in the world, uh, the World Cup, uh, Russia will not participate in. Okay, we see additional steps by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, calling on member sports federations to ban Russian and Belarusian athletes from their competitions. And this is extraordinary because, as we know, especially with the Olympics, right? Uh, the International Olympic Committee insists that politics must be kept separate from sports, right? And other federations, FIFA, the International Ice Hockey Federation, other federations insist that sports and politics must be 
must be kept separate. Uh, so here we see steps by international leagues, by international federations to, um, you know, basically to ban Russian and Belarusian athletes to pull any competitions out of Russia. And this is, you know, I argue this is a necessary step. And the reason why it's necessary is because in his two decades as Russian leader, Putin has used international sports. So there's this term now, sports washing. Putin has been expert in sports washing um, Russia's aggression against its neighbor, uh, the authoritarian turn of the Putin government, uh, and the, the criminal activities uh, within Russia that have you know, happened under the, under the sanction of, of Putin's government. So, uh, so Putin has really adeptly used connections with international sports to cover up uh, his, you could say, his, his actions elsewhere. You know, the best example of this is in 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia. So a similar situation is now an unprovoked invasion of a neighboring country. It occurred the same day Putin was in Beijing for the opening of the Summer Olympics, right? And so Putin has used Russia's involvement in international sports to cover up these actions. And whenever somebody raises a question about should Putin or should Russia be allowed to hold the World Cup? Should Russia be allowed to be involved in the Olympics? Uh, Putin and his his allies have taken on this cloak of the supposed neutrality of world sports to say, oh, you can't you can't mix politics and sports. We can't raise this question, right? So now this is finally finally coming to an end. That international sports bodies are saying, we're done with Putin. We're done with Russia. Now, are these just, um, in your take, are these just symbolic acts uh, or do they feel that these kinds of sanctions will have any sway in, you know, I mean, Putin's an athlete, right? He's a judo or, you know, like a judo master or something, you know, I mean, will they have any, any the international judo federation, by the way, uh, uh, rescinded. Putin's honorary, I think he's the honorary president of the Judo Federation. Yeah, I think I, I think I saw yeah. that. Yeah, I saw that. But will they have any effect? I mean, you know, how much how much is sports tied up with Putin's, I don't know, understanding of his Russian identity or whatever that, you know, is this going to bother him at all? Oh, that's a good question. I yeah. would argue that, yes, it, it does bother him and it hits yeah. him when it hurts because, as you said, you know, Putin is an athlete. He likes to present himself an athlete, right? The, you know, the pictures yeah. of Putin with his shirt off yep. are, are legion. Yeah. Uh, for the last, uh, boy, about the last 10 years, Putin has played uh, in a charity hockey game every year with former members of the Soviet national team and, yeah. and former Russian NHLers, right? So, and the, these games, he, he, even though he's wobbly on skates, he gets in front of a big crowd in an arena. The game is broadcast on television. Yeah. So this is a big part of, of Putin's public image is Putin as the sports enthusiast, as the athlete, um, you know, meeting with athletes, meeting with with Russian athletes on their way back from the Olympics. So so it, it strikes at part of Putin's public image. It also strikes at Putin's attempts to remain connected and to keep Russia's standing in the international community through world sports. So by banning Russia from the World Cup, from other international events, 
you take away that tool in Putin's political arsenal, right? He can no longer he can no longer maintain good relations with the rest of the world through Russian involvement in sports. And so, you know, the the actions by sports bodies connect with all of the other sanctions we see happening in terms of Russian Russia is going to be completely isolated, right? Russians can't get money out of their banks. Okay, Russians can't transfer money to banks overseas. Russians can't fly their planes outside of Russian airspace. And now Russians cannot participate in, in international sporting events. So, so no, it's more than symbolic. This, I say it hits Putin where it hurts because of how he's projected himself in terms of connection with sports. And it's also part of this, this larger strategy of completely, completely isolating Russia internationally. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. I got one more question for you, uh, Bruce. And um, I've been, I've been, I just recently saw a couple of reports about uh, Ukrainians trying to leave uh, Ukraine, women and children, because the men have to stay and fight um, at least, what is it, 18 to 60 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've heard now multiple reports about uh, Africans or Blacks um, of all of all varieties, not just not just Africans, African. I don't know if there's any African Americans, um, but uh, but they they're privileging um, seats on the trains out of Ukraine. Uh, they're privileging white Ukrainians over um, you know people of of color. Um, there's been several reports. I don't know how how widespread this is, and I really you know I'm not really bringing this up to to ask you to comment on that. But it, it does raise for me some interesting kind of questions about race uh, in Ukraine. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll just throw out some things I'm hearing and maybe you can just respond, right? I mean, I hear Putin, right, talking about, you know, all the neo-Nazis who are in uh, Ukraine, right? Despite the fact that uh, the president Zelensky is a Jew and grand, if I understand it right, it's a grand grandchild of Holocaust survivors, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you have, so you have that dimension, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, is there some kind of racial discrimination going on in the Ukraine? Is Putin right about the neo-Nazis? And, and are they playing into kind of a Ukrainian kind of whiteness or whatever? Um, you know, I'm also thinking about, uh, you know, maybe the historic relationship uh, between you know, within the Slavic community, right, from about Russians and Ukrainians, you know, Ukrainians being of different uh, racial categories or something like that. So, uh, again, I don't know if these, I don't know how representative these stories are about the trains and the denial of blacks to to get on these trains. Um, But it does raise to me some interesting questions about race, both in terms of race relations in Ukraine, but also the larger racial dimensions, perhaps, and I know you talked a little bit, little bit about this before, of Putin's uh, invasion. Yeah, so I can't comment on the uh, the reports of yeah. what you've read about from trains. I, I have not seen those reports. What I can say is that there's been uh, quite a bit of work done in recent years uh, by both journalists as well as scholars looking at the question of, of race in, um, in Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet region. 
uh, recognizing that during the communist period, a number of African students and, and migrant workers came to this region, uh, as well as people coming from uh, Southeast Asia uh, who came to this region and, and have stayed there, established families and so forth. Uh, so, so you do have people of, of African descent uh, living in Ukraine and other countries in the region. Uh, they are a small minority, um, but um, this, this question, as you were getting to, uh, it does bring up the issue of, of race and uh, the marginalization of people in this area. As I was talking about earlier, Ukraine is a remarkably diverse, complex region in terms of how people identify. Um, one of the things that characterizes Ukrainians, though, throughout their history is their position as marginal, right? As being looked down upon by Russians, by Poles, by other peoples in, in the region, right? We can go back to the Second World War uh, with German ideology that saw Ukrainians and other Slavic peoples as, uh, as subhuman, correct? So, so this is something that's part of Ukraine's history is their position. One thing we can add when I was talking earlier about Ukraine being part of other empires, uh, during the centuries, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, slave traders would take some 10,000 slaves a year from Ukraine uh, to be traded throughout, uh, throughout the Ottoman Empire. So the history of being, being a marginalized people, being an enslaved people, this is part of Ukraine's history. I have been reading comments along these lines that have brought up questions of, of race in Ukraine. And commentators point out as Ukrainian refugees are now moving into Europe, and there's this great openness right now to Ukrainian refugees, uh, it will only be a matter of time before Ukrainians are looked down upon, right, as not being, uh, uh, you know, in some way being a detriment to society, okay? Uh, and, and thinking about Ukraine's long, long desire to be a member of the European Union and other Western institutions, there has been a view in the capitals of Western Europe to look down on the Ukrainians as, um, uh, as corrupt, as impoverished, as a people who are going to cause a burden on European institutions. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's necessary that we talk about uh, these questions. It is really a complicated issue uh, and it's something that uh, uh, researchers are doing doing really fascinating work on now. Uh, but to, to summarize and to stress, you know, part of Putin's claim for why Russia can invade Ukraine is his his argument that the Ukrainians are not a people, and that justifies this invasion. Yeah, we have been talking in this episode with Bruce Berglund. Uh, author of several books. I want to recommend uh, two of them here. We're, uh, the Fastest Game in the World, Hockey and the Globalization of Sports, uh, University of California Press 2020, and The Castle and, and Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Central European University Press 2017. 
Uh, he taught at Calvin for many years and was the assistant director of the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Kansas. Uh, Bruce, thanks for joining us today and helping us to maybe uh, make sense of what's going on in the in the world right now historically, but also to kind of raise some interesting new interesting questions that you know maybe some of our listeners may want to dig more deeply into about the sort of geopolitical and global ramifications of what's going on in in Ukraine right now. So thanks again. Thanks so much, John. a great interview very informative uh, i think bruce knows what he's talking about when it comes to eastern europe and ukraine you know just a lot of interesting observations and he comes at this from some really interesting angles uh you know stuff about sports uh is is really fascinating to me um you know and who knows maybe maybe it's the sports angle that might irritate uh or hurt Putin more than even the economic sanctions. Who knows? Because it's a direct assault on his kind of sense of pride and his sense of kind of masculine identity. So we wanted to do this episode. Uh, it's, it wasn't planned on our schedule, but Bruce and I were in contact and I said, you know, why don't you come on the podcast and we can help our listeners make some more sense out of what's happening in Ukraine. So I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and found it useful. Uh, again, so thanks for listening. And as always, may your way of improvement lead home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music is by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermeling. Our producer at Nashville is Casey Lehman. And I, John Fia, am your host. 